Well, good morning. It is a blessing and privilege for me to get to spend this final Sunday before Christmas here with you this morning as we open God's Word together. In the fall of 1914, Europe broke out into war, as to what we now call World War I. And the leaders had assured their people that it would be done by Christmas of that year, but as winter approached, everyone soon realized it's not going to end anytime soon. On Christmas Eve of 1914, on the Western Front, where German and British soldiers in some places were just 100 feet away, dug in trenches. But instead of machine gunfire ringing out that night, Christmas carols began to be sung on either side. Often one side would sing and then the other, and one soldier says that together they sang in their own languages the song we sang as we started our service this morning, O Come All Ye Faithful. In the morning, soldiers approached into no man's land, the zone in between, not with shouts of war, but yelling, Merry Christmas, as they entered and brought gifts of just simple chocolate and other buttons and things they had to each other. Some places say that there's pictures even that, that they played soccer for the afternoon as they celebrated Christmas that day together in what's known as the Christmas Truce of 1914. Now we know, unfortunately, from history, the war went on for many years and cost hundreds of thousands of lives. But for that one day, in places there was peace. For those hundred thousand soldiers or so, for that one day, there was calm and peace. See, Christmas brings the peace we all need. Christmas brings the peace that we all need in our lives even today. See, don't we need peace in our lives today? I think if you were going to ask a parent of young children, give me one thing you want for Christmas, peace and quiet would make it very high up the list of something that they would want for this year. But when you think of our world, don't we need peace in our lives? So many of us have such high anxiety and pressure of the weight of the world on our shoulders. Others of us have stress, which is just a fancy way of saying anxiety, but we say it differently. We have stress from things that, that weigh upon our shoulders in this world. And all of us have been separated from God from our sin. And we need not just peace in our relationships with each other, peace in our world, but most importantly, we need peace with God. This morning, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. The book of Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to be looking this morning at three promises of peace that are contained in this Old Testament passage. If you're using one of the Bibles that's in the pew in front of you, it's in um, page 573 is the number that it's in. Isaiah writes this prophecy about 700 to 750 years before the time of Jesus' birth. 700 to 750 BC. And he's writing it in light of what's going to happen to the people of Israel, which is this. The Assyrian nation to the north is going to come down and they're going to decimate and conquer over Israel. And he's prophesied that God has said that this nation will come and he will take you out and it will be an awful time of despair and punishment for the people who are living in the land. 
Yet in the midst of that turmoil and tribulation in which they find themselves, Isaiah switches the tone in chapter 9, and instead of looking at what's going to happen to them now, he starts to look forward to the future and on what they have to hope for. So let's look, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isaiah singles out here Zebulun and Naphtali because of the location of those tribes where they were in the land, that the attacking armies from the north, the first tribes to be hit, were the people in Zebulun and Naphtali. They were the ones under constant attack from Israel's enemies to the north, and they were the ones who would undergo the most severe persecution that was going to come their way. But notice that in looking forward to it, there will be no gloom for those in anguish. Instead of anguish, the way will be made glorious. Verse 2 says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And Isaiah uses a contrast here that we see referenced throughout all of Scripture. The darkness of sin and evil and suffering contrasted with the light of God's presence when it arrives in the situations in which it brings light. This second phrase, not just darkness, but deep darkness. Some translations say that that's the shadow of darkness or the shadow of death itself. Within that context, a great light shines. Now what's interesting, isn't it, because Isaiah's writing verses 2, and he actually writes verses 2 all the way through verse 5 in the past tense. He's writing as if these things had already taken place. And it's something that scholars call a prophetic past tense writing, meaning this, that Isaiah is looking forward to events that are hundreds of years in the future, but because God has promised it will happen, he is so sure of it, he writes about future events in the past tense because what God has promised will come to happen. And that's why verses 2 to 5 in our scripture are, are written in the past tense, not because they've happened, but because they will happen. And it's Isaiah's way of proclaiming how sure these events are to take place in the future. The people in darkness have seen now a great light. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah has three reversals of fortune for God's people looking forward to the future. And these reversals will bring them great joy. First reversal is that there will be multiplication in the nation. The immediate context of what's going to happen is the Assyrians will come in, defeat them, and remove the people from the land. But rather than subtraction, Isaiah is looking forward to a day of multiplication, a reversal of fortunes. They will sing with joy at the harvest. One of the weapons of warfare was to burn the crops of the people who you were invading so they could not sustain war against you. And rather than having their crops decimated, they would instead have great joy at the time of harvest. And last, they were looking forward to the day when the spoil would be divided amongst them rather than their possessions and their valuables being taken by someone else and divided amongst someone else. Verse 4. 
says the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This freedom that the people will experience is is described here with two historical perspectives as Isaiah is looking back at God's history. The first is obvious. We see here it says that you've broken it as on the day of Midian. Well, what is Isaiah referencing? What's the day of Midian? The day of Midian is a reference back to the book of Judges when God raised up a leader by the name of Gideon. And the the people of Israel were under oppression by the Midianites. And God raised up Gideon and an army of 32,000 people to free them from the Midianites. And then if you know the story, God widows down the army. So instead of 32,000 men, Gideon fights into battle with 300 men. With 300 men. And God gives them instructions and they surround the enemy camp at night. They light torches and they blow trumpets. And God causes a stir amongst the enemies that they go around and they defeat themselves. And literally God's army, the army of Israel, never even lifts a sword or a weapon. It's a supernatural deliverance of God. The other historical event that's referenced here in verse 5 is from terms that are referenced back in previous events. The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor are all terms that are given towards the slavery that Israel had when they were in Egypt. They're all referenced back to Israel's time in bondage in Egypt, where Israel had become a great nation, but had become enslaved by the Egyptians until God sent down plagues upon the lands on which finally Pharaoh let God's people go and they left and they went out to the place that God had called them to. Isaiah is thinking of just as it was in the time of the Exodus, just as it was when God used Gideon to free his people, that's what it will be like in the future as well. Verse 5 says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The shoes that they would bring out into war and the garments, the robes that they would take, instead of being prepared for war, will simply be burned as fuel for the fire. This is an imagery of no more warfare on earth. And it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If the robes of war will be burnt, then surely the weapons of war will be, will be burnt as well. This first promise of peace that Isaiah looks forward to for God's people is the provision of peace. The provision of peace for God's people. See, peace in Scripture is not just the absence of hostility or the absence of war, although it certainly does include that. But peace in Scripture has a greater connotation. It's a connotation of fullness, of wholeness, of complete and utter harmony in the world and amongst people. And the the activity and the peace in which God is going to bring about, it's not something that he's telling Isaiah that that the men is going to have to fight for this but it's something provided to them by God. That's why of all the events of history, Isaiah looks back at the time of the Exodus and the time of Gideon. Because if there's any two events that are so obviously God delivering his people, not them doing anything, it was these two events. And we look forward to a day, and now we on this side of history look back to that day where peace isn't something we have to fight for in our lives, but it's provided to us by God himself. 
God's peace brings radical change into the lives of his people. Notice that they go from deep and utter darkness into glorious light. The people who are in anguish are now rejoicing. There's an utter reversal of what happens because God's peace has come and invaded and entered into the heart of his people. When God's peace is experienced in our lives, it should bring about radical change in our lives. See, every fall, there's a great debate that goes on all over the world. On one side, you have a group of people who say that Christmas music can be listened to whenever they so please. It may be Labor Day, Thanksgiving may not be here yet, but we can still listen to Christmas music. On the other side, we have this group of people who are called wrong. I think the Hebrew term is Scrooge or Grinch. I'm I'm rough on my Hebrew. I need to go check it up. But we, we have these rules and some people fuss over when we sing certain songs and whatnot. But as you start to sing Christmas songs, and even if today was the first time that you've sung Christmas carols so far this year, it's amazing some of the themes that comes through with the music. For instance, in one of my favorites, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it says this, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. Later, a verse starts, hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Another, O holy night, says this, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. In O little town of Bethlehem, It says, O morning stars together, proclaim the holy birth, and praises sing to God the King, and peace to men on earth. Peace is not just something that we can sing about at Christmas. Peace is something that we can experience in our lives. It's not just this mythical concept of, oh, wouldn't it be nice if there could be peace on earth? Wouldn't it be nice if I could experience peace in my life right now? The reality is that there's a provision of peace that's given to us by God himself. God's peace radically changes his people. Well, as Isaiah looks forward to this radical provision of peace for his people, the the response would be after reading these five verses, well, how is this going to happen? How is this provision of peace where war will be wiped out, where all will be made new, where the reversal of fortune for his people will be had, how is this going to be brought about? And so he finishes, and sorry, continues in verse 6. He says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The answer to the tumult that God's people experienced 2,500 years ago, the answer to what we experience in our world today isn't something of our own doing, but it's a child being born. It was a son being given to us. And rather than oppression and a yoke being on the shoulders, when the government is on his shoulder, it means freedom. For us. 
It says that his name will be called. Names in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah, aren't just this is his naming, but these are his character qualities. This is the who he is, this child we're looking forward to. So he gives us four descriptions, Isaiah does. First is the wonderful counselor. The wonderful counselor. Now, when, when Isaiah uses this term wonderful, it's not often how we would use the term wonderful today, as if someone holds the door open for us on a cold day, and we say, well, that's so wonderful of you to hold the door open. In Old Testament terms, wonderful is another way of saying something is supernatural, or it's out of this world. It's beyond human comprehension. We see this throughout the Old Testament. One example is in the book of Judges. When God shows up to Samson's parents and proclaims that you're going to have a son who's going to deliver his people from the oppression they're facing. And then they, they dialogue back and forth, and Samson's father, Manoah, asks this person, well, well, who is your name? What is your name that we can trust you? And his response is, my name is too wonderful for you to know. My name is too wonderful for you to know. And immediately after saying that, Samson's parents look at each other and his dad says, we have seen God. We may die from this. We have seen God. Wonderful doesn't just mean, oh, sweet and kind. It means supernatural. It means God himself. That he will bring supernatural, God-like wisdom and counsel to this world. He will be one possessed with supernatural wisdom. Next, he is mighty God. He is the mighty God. Now, some scholars who would try and get around this fact that they, they could be talking about this child being born also being divine would argue that, oh, this is just saying he's going to be empowered by God. Because this word mighty in the Old Testament often describes great mighty men who do acts of valor. But every time in the Old Testament that mighty and God go together, it clearly refers to God, including in the very next chapter of Isaiah, in Isaiah 10, where he talks about a remnant of people returning to the mighty God. This son, this child is not just a man, but he is actually also God himself. That's the promise looking forward. He's the everlasting father. Instead of the rule being one of, righteous, of oppression and, and burdensome, it will be one of righteousness and justice for all of his people. The reign will be everlasting. And lastly, he's the prince of peace. That this ruler to come, this son, this Messiah to be born, will be the one who will bring about peace to his people and will be the one who will bring peace to our world. The second promise of peace that we see in the book of Isaiah is the provider of peace. The provider of peace, which is none other than Jesus Christ himself. How will all the wrongs of the world be righted? A child will be born. The prophet looked forward to one who would bring peace. And on this side of history, we get to look back at the one who has brought us peace through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection from the dead. That you can search for whatever you want in this world, but nothing can bring peace that only Jesus provides for us. It's why the apostle Paul who spent the earlier part of his life chasing down and seeking Christians to murder them. After he became a believer, 
He writes in one of his letters in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. And there is no peace in this world that we can find apart from him. There's no peace that we can have that will last, that will be of any value to us apart from the peace that is found in Jesus Christ himself. But that doesn't stop us from trying, does it? So often we try and go out and find peace apart from Jesus. How do we go out and find peace apart from Jesus in our world? What are the things that, that sometimes people in our world do? first way that we go out and seek peace apart from Jesus is to numb the pain of this world. We figure rather than actually finding peace to the problems of my life, I'm just going to numb the pain away. And it's why there's such a crisis in our world of epidemic proportions with all the drug use, the alcohol use. But not just that. It's why so many people numb the pain away by working 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. Numbing themselves to the reality, the struggle of their life, and rather than, than deal with the pain and the hurt and their need for something beyond what they have, they simply numb the pain away for another day, and then they do the same thing tomorrow and the day after and the day after. The second way that people often try and find peace apart from Jesus is to drown themselves in distractions. To drown themselves in distractions. We live in a world where we can always distract ourselves. Be it we find ourselves in a waiting room and we have two minutes before the doctor sees us, what do we do? We pull out our phones. Heaven forbid we be quiet by ourselves for two single minutes, right? We can constantly drown ourselves in distractions. And rather than dealing with the issues that we know we have and that we face in our lives, let's just put it aside. Let's just distract ourselves from the hurt and the pain of life. The last thing that we do is often we just search on our own. We search for it on our own. Maybe you're here today because you're searching for peace and you're trying different faiths, you're trying different books, you're trying different methods, all of saying, well, if I do this, if I practice this, if I do enough of this, if I believe hard enough in something like this, then that will bring me peace. Friends, there is no peace in this world apart from Jesus. There is no peace in this world apart from Jesus. And many of us, rather than dealing with the hurt and the pain and the issues in our lives, we're drowning ourselves in distractions. We're numbing the pain. Say, would you stop going down a cycle that leads just to more brokenness and hurt and pain and instead turn to the one who provides for us peace through his life, death, and resurrection. He provides the forgiveness of sin that we need. Peace can only be found in Jesus. Isaiah goes on in verse 7 to talk about more of the kind of rule and reign that this prince of peace will have on the earth. He says this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Of the, the increase of his government and peace. This is the, the same word that, that was used in the book of Genesis where Adam and Eve were told to increase, multiply, and fill the earth. It's the same metaphor, but rather than the earth filling with humanity, it's filling with God's love and God's peace and God's kingdom spreading throughout all of the earth. And as it goes, as it increases, there will be no ends to the increase. There will be nothing that can stop this kingdom, this rule and reign that Jesus comes to bring about in our world. And he will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Meaning this one to come will fulfill the prophecy in 2 Samuel 7. That David would have a ruler over him that would reign forever. That they're looking forward to this ruler of David, this one who would come as the Messiah himself. That he would establish it and uphold this kingdom with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal, the passion that God has for his glory and for his people will accomplish this, that this peace that he brings cannot be defeated. No one can overthrow it. It will continue to increase and grow throughout the world. The third promise of peace that Isaiah 9 gives us is the permanence of peace. The permanence of peace. Of his rule and of his reign, there will be no end. There's nothing that we can do when we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can do that God will cancel that peace from us. There's nothing that our world can do that will overpower God's rule and God's reign, that will overthrow him and the peace that he wants to bring to his people. Yet so often because of the circumstances of life and the uncertainty, it doesn't always feel like we experience the peace of God in our world. And sometimes that leads us to living lives of fear. I had the privilege a few summers ago to travel two, two years in a row in particular to the Czech Republic. And it was interesting as, as we traveled there and met and talked with a lot of the people and made some great friends over there as we worked with them, um, we learned some of history of the Czech Republic. And so we're going to do a quick history lesson here this morning. Kids, you thought you were out of school for two weeks. Sorry, not yet. All right, you got a few more minutes and then you're done. Czech history. In 1918, after World War ended, Czechoslovakia, the country, was founded. Yet just 20-something years later, the Munich Pact happened, which is where European nations gave the country away to Hitler and to Nazi Germany, and they marched into Czechoslovakia unfought for. The world gave them away. Here, take them over, have them. After World War II, there was some peace, but then in 1968, there was the Warsaw Pact, where this time five nations from the other side, from the Eastern Front, came and invaded Czechoslovakia, and no one stood up and fought for their nation, and they were taken over again, this time by communism. And then in 1989, when communism was overthrown, there's what they called the Velvet Revolution, where Czech Republic and Slovakia formed into two different countries. And it was interesting as we talked with some of the missionaries and the people who are in leadership there, they say that if you talk to someone in the Czech Republic who's older, who's beyond their teenage years, especially if they're 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, they live with this sense of dread for the future at times. Because if you look at their history, 
Every 20 to 30 years, someone comes and takes their nation over. Some violent thing happens that overthrows the status quo. And if you look at these timelines, 30 years from the last time it happened is right now. And at times there's this sense of unease, of uncertainty about the future because of all that's happened in the past. And how can we know what's going to happen going forward? Because peace for them was, has not been assured throughout their country's history. In our lives, life is filled with hardship and uncertainty. Life doesn't change in dramatic moments, oftentimes every 30 years. Sometimes it's every 30 days. So it feels like another health diagnosis comes in, another job prospect falls through, another phone call comes in the middle of the night that was unexpected. And in the midst of the tumult and the uncertainty of our world, what do we have to hold on to? We had the peace of God to hold on to. The permanence of God's peace can anchor us amidst life's trials and tribulations. See, the peace of God never leaves us because God never leaves us. If you're a child of God, the peace of God never leaves you because God never leaves you. This is what Jesus promised to us in John chapter 14 when the Holy Spirit would come. He said this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. We can experience peace in our world no matter the circumstances that happen in our lives because God is with us. The peace that you have been given by God if you're a believer, no one can take it away and God's presence is always there with you no matter what. Oftentimes at the end of the year, 2019 is just over a week away, things pop up and start to, to remind us of all that happened in 2018. And contrary to what our social media feeds may say, it wasn't all just family fun and vacations. And if you're like me, your 2018 had a lot of ups and had a lot of downs as well. And I don't know about you, but in 2018, I lost people that I loved dearly. There was hurt and pain in my life. If I'm honest, I had more sleepless nights and I probably cried more tears this last year as an adult than I ever have in my life. What do we have to hold on to in the midst of peace and in the midst of uncertainty, excuse me, and all that goes on in our world? What do we have that can anchor us amidst the tribulations of life? It's the peace of God. It's why Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't know what 2019 is going to bring to your life. I don't know what's going to happen to you. But I do know that if you're a follower of Jesus today, that God's peace will be there with you every step of the way. And even though the world may look at you and say, you can't have peace. Look at all that's happening in your world. Look at what's happening in your family. You can't have peace right now. That a peace which surpasses all human understanding can be yours in Jesus Christ.
common holiday tradition, which I suppose most of us here today do, is the giving of gifts to each other. And there's kind of two sides in gift giving, right? There's the giving side and the receiving side. Some of us like one more than the other. Sometimes it depends on the age. And if I were to go to your house today, there would probably be lots of gifts either ready to go out the door to family's house or maybe even underneath your tree. And I don't know about you, but I've always liked getting gifts. I think we even have a picture of me when I was young having gifts. As you can tell, I was a spoiled child by my grandparents. Cute, but spoiled, certainly around the Christmas season. I don't know why my parents took pictures with me and all my toys after Christmas. I need to ask them that. Like, what was, what was up with this, all right? But you can see that the, these toys, all this stuff was wrapped and underneath the Christmas tree, right? It was all there. The gifts had been given to me already. And at Christmas, what do we get to do? We get to receive those gifts. We get to make them our own. They no longer just sit there, but we receive them as our own. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says that to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Jesus is offered. The gift of salvation is there. Jesus has given it. God has provided the way to have peace with him for whoever wants it. The gift is given. And in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This Christmas, would you receive the greatest gift of all, which is peace with God through Jesus Christ? See, Christmas brings the peace that we all need. Because Christmas brings Jesus, and Jesus brings us peace. God, we thank you for the peace that we can have through your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray for anyone today who has not yet experienced that transforming peace in their lives. Today, would you move in their hearts, even right now, Help them to surrender of themselves, to stop numbing the pain, to stop seeking on their own, but to surrender their lives to you. We thank you that you have provided the way for us to have peace. God, as we look forward to this next year and look back on the year that's come, we're so thankful that you're there with us every step of the way. God, may we live as people in our world who are confident that no matter what happens to us, we have with us the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding. We thank you that over 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born and you brought us peace. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.